Welcome to the webinar um, covering worksite compliance uh, in the age of COVID-19. Uh, we will be getting started um, as everyone arrives, and I see the numbers um, inching up very, very quickly. Um, a recording of this webinar will be sent to everyone who registered today. It will also be available on our website and will be published as a bonus episode on our podcast, Statutes of Liberty. Our speakers today are me, Elise Fialkowski, a partner at Clasco Immigration Law Partners. And I also am very happy to have Drew Zeltner with me. Um, Drew is one of our senior attorneys who helps me on many, many, many worksite compliance matters. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks, Drew. Um, so, uh, one just bit of uh, housekeeping here. Um, you'll see on your dashboard there are sections for questions and chat. We ask you to submit questions in the question box, and we will handle as many of those questions as we can um, in the last 15 minutes of the webinar. Um, if we can't get to those questions, um, we will do our best to answer all of them after the webinar. And we also invite you to reach out to me and Drew directly uh, with any questions related to worksite compliance. Okay, so let's get started. I see the numbers um, are actually very high. Thank you all so much for joining. Um, so what are we going to talk about today? Um, there's several things we want to talk about. Um, there is a new Form I-9 that must be used beginning um, May 2020, actually early this month. Um, very, very new COVID-19 I-9 policies. Um, and if all of the new COVID-19 uh, I-9 policies are not enough, um, in the midst of this, we got M274 employer handbook updates. Um, we're also going to cover what's happening now with I-9 enforcement, um, even though we're in the midst of COVID-19. Um, and we're going to talk about potential I-9 fines and penalties. Uh, as well. So let's get started. Um, so new version of Form I-9. This new form was released. Um, it has a version date of October 21st. Um, it has to be used as of May 1st, 2020 this year. I think many of you started using it right away, um, particularly because there aren't many changes with it. Uh, in fact, when OMB uh, filed um, for this new version of the I-9, um, they actually labeled it an extension without change. Interestingly, however, uh, when Drew and I reviewed the new form I-9 and the instructions, there are some changes, and some of these changes are particularly relevant uh, for what is happening now with COVID-19. Uh, for example, 
there is additional information in the instructions with regard to um, using a remote completion or using an authorized representative uh, for an employer um, to complete the I-9 process. Um, in the Form I-9 instructions, um, it clearly provides now that the authorized representative can be any person. Um, of course, um, the instructions also highlight um, you need to be careful in terms of selecting that person because ultimately the employer will be liable for any violations by the agent. Um, also want to highlight something else new in the instructions for the new Form I-9. Um, this is a first as well. Um, it, it kind of gives us a hint at what has been going on all in the background recently with worksite compliance in terms of information sharing. So there is a nod to that in the instructions. It basically says DHS may share information as appropriate from the I-9s with law enforcement agencies or for national security. So Drew, do you want to give us some background on the basic I-9 process just as to kind of level set here so we can talk about the normal process and what we may think about doing now with all of the changes brought about with COVID-19? Sure. So as a baseline, these are the basics that we hope you're implementing, you know, already, which, of course, being you, you cannot, you know, commence the I-9 process until a job offer has been accepted. Right. The employee has to complete Section 1 um, on or at least before, or before their first day of employment. Um, it's imperative, of course, that Section 2 be completed within three business days. Um, there is no, of course, uh, anything we can do for late completion. The only thing you can really do is learn from it um, so it doesn't happen again. And documents have to be examined in the employee's physical uh, physical presence. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. There's been some changes on that with regard to COVID. And, of course, the documents have to relate to the employee and be reasonably genuine. So you're not expected to be a document expert, but the documents do have to at least look reasonably genuine on their face in order to be acceptable. So, Elise, what are, you know, obviously with COVID, there have been multiple announcements with regards to changing the basic I-9 process. Do you want to take us through that a little bit? Sure. So we're going to go through, um, as we do the webinar, all of the many, many changes. But I wanted to provide for everyone on a slide a snapshot of everything that's been going on. And as you can see, the <laughs> things have been changing um, every couple of weeks, um, if not every couple of days. Um, so March 20th, um, we had our first announcement with regard to flexibility related to the Form uh, I-9, and that's that virtual completion that we're going to talk about. Um, there was also a notification extending timeframes for those who use E-Verify who get tentative non-confirmations the next day. Um, and then in early April, um, USCIS issued FAQs, uh, further giving guidance with regard to that enhanced flexibility. 
Um, May 1st, um, there was additional guidance with regard to List B documents, uh, particularly because many folks um, could not get their List B document extended. And just as a reminder, um, List B documents are those identity documents. It's usually the driver's license, and many DMV um, agencies have been closed. Um, so there has been guidance for that. Um, and then, um, very, very recently, just last week, um, that flexibility was extended for another 30 days. Um, so it's now extended till June 19th. Um, and potentially we may get another extension, um, but we will see in terms of additional extensions. Um, right. So, so for an administration that has a very well-deserved reputation as being inflexible with regards to immigration in general, we've seen them kind of, we've seen a lot of movement in this area to, to be accommodating based on this crisis, thankfully. Yeah, Andrew, that's a really good point. And, and we were very pleased. I am on the American Immigration Lawyers Association Verification Committee. Um, and the committee and AILA sent a, a letter to the government uh, requesting accommodations in light of COVID-19. Um, and it, luckily, we did get the accommodations um, in the form of this um, enhanced flexibility. And we'll talk about the enhanced flexibility and each of these memos in a lot more detail, but I just wanted to give everyone a quick snapshot. Um, Drew, do you kind of want to cover um, an intro for that March 20th memo uh, regarding enhanced flexibility? Sure. So the, the time deadlines that I spoke about earlier with regards to Section 1 and Section 2 don't change, right? So you still have the no later than first day of employment requirement in Section 1 and the three business day requirement in Section 2. Um, if you're not working remotely and, and, and your staff is, you know, on site, none of this affects you. These, these changes don't kick in. Um, however, for remote work, it allows that physical presence requirement, and by that I mean the, the physical review of documents to actually be deferred for the first time until three days after your normal oper uh, operations uh, resume. And Elise is going to talk about what it means to have normal operations resume because we, we think there's some questions surrounding that. Um, for remote work, um, the government makes clear that this virtual review can take place over video, fax, uh, or email, and they, the, the uh, DHS laid out a full announcement on March 20th uh, in regarding these points. Um, so, Elise, with regards to this flexibility, who benefits from it, and, and how long does it last? Yeah, that, so that's a great question. So if we look at the text uh, of the actual announcement on March 20th, when you start reading the announcement, um, it, the whole intro basically says that this enhanced flexibility um, applies if the employer is taking physical proximity precautions due to COVID-19. Um, and quite honestly, pretty much any employer in the entire country is now taking physical proximity precautions. 
But if you look further down um, in that March 20th guidance, um, there's a little bit of language that seems to be somewhat limiting. Um, the government then says this enhanced flexibility only applies to employers and workplaces that are operating remotely. Um, and the part that's most concerning is um, the sentence where they say, if there are employees physically present at a work location, no exceptions are being implemented at this time for in-person verification. However, if employees are subject to COVID-19 quarantine or lockdown protocols, DHS will evaluate on a case-by-case -case basis. So right. So, so at least I think that, you know, many employers may be in the boat of having the vast majority of their employees working remotely, right, uh, due to, to COVID-19, but also have perhaps a very small skeleton staff that perhaps comes into office, into the office, you know, on occasion. Um, you know, how do you think we can reconcile that with this no exceptions language from DHS? Right. So, Drew, that's a great question, and it's a question we're getting all the time, right? Um, I think it's I think it's somewhat difficult to reconcile clearly. In fact, um, we the verification committee is going to have a virtual meeting with the government uh, coming up in early June, um, and that is one of the first questions on our agenda: how we reconcile these. Um, nevertheless, um, we did um, have it b before everyone was kind of in lockdown. Um, there was a government presentation where um, several representatives of the government responsible for I-9s um, started talking with AILA um, at a conference um, about potential accommodations um, in light of COVID-19. And during that, um, that panel, um, we clearly got the sense that we need to take a reasonable approach here. Um, and it does appear in communications with the government that at the end of the day, the goal is to have a reasonable approach. I think any employer looking at this needs first and foremost um, to protect its workforce, right? So I think any employer, and I think most of our clients and even our firm um, are working remotely, but some have a skeleton staff who may come in for a day or two or, or may alternate days. Um, I don't think if you have necessarily that skeleton staff um, that you can't use this option for enhanced flexibility. Um, what I would recommend, however, if you have a skeleton staff, and we'll talk about all the requirements shortly for this virtual uh, completion, I would really recommend being very careful and having great language, uh, for example, from the CDC website um, and other websites about uh, social distancing and precautions due to COVID-19 because the government is going to require with any I-9s that are done through this virtual process that the employer clearly document the policy and the reasons why the I-9 is being done virtually. 
So until we have further guidance, I think there's a potential risk. Um, but I think first and foremost, we have to be reasonable about this and protect employees. And we would think, and the committee has talked about this a lot, um, that the government would be reasonable in this situation um, to allow virtual completion. One of the other things that often happens here is you may have an employee physically on site, um, but quite often the employees who are very knowledgeable, who have been trained in I-9s and who regularly do I-9s, they're probably not going to be physically on site. So if those employees are not physically on site, they will not be able to do that process in the presence of the employee. And that's something else as well that you would put in your memo. Right. And, and the genesis of the guidance, you know, from DHS, you know, surrounding all of this, of, of course, has been to encourage flexibility and allow employers to to benefit from that. So one would think, hopefully, that they would take, you know, that kind of a reasonableness standard in, into how they will, you know, view that issue. Uh, but the bottom line for employers, at least at this point, is they're going to have to decide what to do, right? So what are the options, right? Take us through really what we see as the three options to complete I-9s, um, you know, during this time. Right. So there's always the basic process in person, right? So the right. employers always fall back on the basic process. Um, it, we have several clients that actually have to work, right? Think about um, hospitals and other uh, essential businesses. If you have an essential business where they are required to work and the folks that do I-9s are also on site, you may be able to take advantage of the basic process, assuming of course you can do the requisite social distancing and right. protect your employees. Right. So there's nothing in any of this that says the you know old rules have, as they have always existed cannot be utilized. Correct. Absolutely. So the, the basic process is a fallback. Um, of course, the second option is what we kind of introed from the March 20th memo, which is that virtual verification followed by that in-person review of documents three days after normal operations resume. Uh, right. So query what normal operations means um, in this day and age. Um, many of our clients and our firm as well um, have been drafting procedures and policies for a hopeful return to work. But any return to work now, I think will be anything but normal. Um, most employers are planning returns to work where they may have only a portion of their staff on. Um, they may have half of their staff on two days and the other half on another two days and then have a cleaning in between. So it's not clear at this point um, what quote unquote normal operations are. Um, that is something else that we are seeking um, additional guidance from the government on and Drew and I will send out a blog and update everyone as soon as there's any additional guidance. But That's right, Elise, as soon as we get back to our normal operations, right? No, <laughs> just kidding. Exactly, exactly. Well, 
or even beforehand because we're all working. Right. <laughs> it'll, it'll, it will be beforehand once we get the guys. So, um, so that's a real question. And I think what I really want employers to think about when they're thinking about normal operations is, you know, I think there's a pretty good argument that normal operations are probably going to mean not only that the employee is back, um, but staff that are experienced and can handle I-9s are in fact back um, in the office. Um, we'll see if we get additional guidance on that. Um, but normal operations and timelines, that's another thing that I think it behooves the employers to kind of keep documentation simultaneously in a timely fashion about why this I-9 is timely, why it was completed in a timely fashion with uh, regard to normal operations, and perhaps even um, have a memo to that effect. Because if there's ever a notice of inspection I-9 audit down the road, it could be years later and no one is really gonna remember the underlying facts to make an argument that this really was a timely um, in-person review following the virtual verification. Um, and I think a lot of employers are very hesitant to use this virtual verification um, because it is a little bit of a cumbersome process and they are very concerned about meeting that timeline where they literally have to go through the process again and have the employee physically in front of someone and reviewing the document. So what is the option that a lot of people are doing now? Um, and we'll talk about all these in more detail. It's the remote agent verification. And as Drew said, you know, this rule doesn't change anything in terms of potential options that were available in the past. And many employers, particularly employers that um, had employees working remotely as a matter of course, employees who would regularly work from home, um, employees who may have had a, a sales territory that's not out of headquarters. Um, a lot of those employers had already set up a remote er agent verification process where there is a designated agent that can complete the I-9 on the employer's behalf. So those are the three options that we're gonna go through in more detail. So first off, I tried to give everyone a really good short summary of the virtual process. I went through not only the memos, but the FAQs that came out. So I think this is kind of a step-by-step -step process for employers to really proceed and think about whether or not they can take advantage and whether they want to take advantage of the enhanced flexibility. So number one, like as we just talked about, confirm that you qualify, right? Um, confirm that it, this is remote. Remember as well, and the timelines for I-9s have not changed whatsoever. Um, the employee, even with this quote-unquote enhanced flexibility, still has to complete the I-9, section one of the I-9, on or before the first day of work. Um, and remember, as Drew said previously, 
Um, it can be done in advance, um, but we usually want at least a written offer and acceptance before that section one is done. Um, same thing with the timelines for the employer. That enhanced flexibility doesn't give the employer any additional time for section two. Um, section two, where the employer um, actually reviews the documents. And remember, the process for section two is that the employer generally should provide to the employee the list of acceptable documents. And remember, there is the column on the list of documents. It's the list A. They're documents that provide both um, identity and employment eligibility. There's the list B documents that provide identity. And there's the list C documents that provide employment authorization. So it's the same process where the employer either needs um, a list A document um, that shows both or a combination of documents from list B and list C. And just like the normal procedures, the employer has to be very careful here not to suggest what documents should be used for the I-9. Um, I think a lot of employers kind of want to help and facilitate the process now because they know employees are stressed out. They may want to make it easier for employees. But please, please resist the urge um, <laughs> to an employee, for example. Just give me a, your um, green card or just give me your passport or um, you know everyone gives us the driver's license and social security number that's what we want and why am i saying that I, um, if you ask for specific documents in the i-9 process that could be what's called document abuse um, so it could be found to be discrimination and that is enforced by the office of immigrant and employee rights so we still need to make sure we're we're doing that process, even if we can do it remotely. Um, so by that third day, um, the employer must inspect the Section 2 documents remotely, either by video, fax, or email. Now, Drew, what are your thoughts? What do you think is the best way to handle that virtual process with an employee? Would you vote for video, fax, or email? I'm not sure who uses fax anymore, so I think it's funny that they put that in there, but I guess that's an option. So I wouldn't vote for fax. Do you have to remember that USCIS still uses fax? USCIS is not exactly in the 21st century, but that's a webinar for another day. So I think we would be partial towards video. You know, I would have secure uh, concerns about security with regards to emails, and you have a lot of personally identifiable information flying around through email. I really don't think that that's a best practice. Um, you know, I'm partial to video for that uh, for that reason. Um, we're all experts on Teams these days, right? So I think it's uh, it's a medium that we're all uh, familiar with. Um, so, so I would vote for video. And, and the other point I want to make on, on this slide that I think is critical is that when normal business operations do resume, right, you do actually have to re-review 
those physical I-9 documents. And I think folks, I think this is one that's really going to be missed, right? Because I think when everyone goes back to work, right, how many other things are there that are going to need to be done, right, when everyone gets back, that this that this requirement is going to get missed. So I do think if you're going to go forward with the virtual process, which you you know might need to have to go through just out of, out of safety's sake, right, and, and not having folks individually in the office, really take note of that three business day requirement because I could really see that as, as something that's problematic in audits going forward. Yeah, Andrew, I, I absolutely, absolutely agree. And another thing that I think um, some companies may um, kind of get caught up on as an issue um, is that this, um, this enhanced flexibility absolutely requires that by the third day, not only should the employer be inspecting these documents remotely, um, video, fax, or email, but they do need to obtain by that third day and inspect copies of those Section 2 documents. So what we recommend is they actually obtain by the third day um, securely copies of those documents. Um, and there can be several ways to do it, password protected. There are several um, electronic I-9 systems that make this easier. Um, there are share file systems that can be used as well. But I do want to highlight that something else that could be missed, particularly if the employers, as a matter of course, do not um, retain copies of um, I-9 documents. Um, I'll leave for another day my full discussion of why I think it, it's a really good policy for employers to um, pretty much always uh, retain um, and copy the I-9 documents um, for several reasons. Uh, for example, it helps with audit. It helps the employer defend itself if there's ever a notice. But that is something to consider as part of the larger picture as well. I already alluded to as well the requirement that the employer must provide written documentation and I'm quoting this from the, the March 20th guidance, written documentation of the remote onboarding and telework policy. So we are working with a couple of clients to actually review these policies and the written documentation. Um, but it behooves every employer to have that policy um, and have it either attached to each of the I-9s um, or have something written on the I-9 if you're only going to have one page um, referring to that policy that can be kept with the I-9s. I honestly think at the end of the day, um, while I would love to save trees, if you're going through a notice of inspection and you're compiling your I-9s um, for review, um, it's probably much easier um, at the time the I-9 is done using this virtual process to just attach that policy to that I-9. So you don't have to worry potentially about figuring out which I-9s um, were subject to that policy if there's ever a notice of inspection. Um, query as well um, how um, employers may do this um, if they have an electronic I-9 program. 
a lot of the electronic I-9 programs are working out specific procedures for employers to use this virtual I-9 completion and attach documentation like these policies. Um, as Drew alluded to, you have to be careful about those three days. So we really want our employers to have a really good solid procedure for tracking all of those virtual I-9s to actually meet that three-day deadline for normal business operations. Um, lastly, um, once, the, once the employee's back and the documents are physically examined, the employer should add COVID-19 and documents physically examined with the date of inspection. And we also recommend um, who conducted it with initials to the additional information field in section two. Um, also remember that this virtual process um, can be used not only for an initial hire, but it can also be used for re-verification. So if you have an employee that is already employed, but their I-9 documents and their employment authorization is expiring and you need to re-verify before the end of the expiration, you can use this virtual process for re-verification. If you do and you're updating section three, you would note COVID-19 EXT or extension in the margin or you can also put that in the additional information field. Okay, so that's the overview of um, the virtual process, which is a little cumbersome and has some issues. So let's look at <coughs> another possibility, the remote agent process. Um, as we alluded to in the beginning of the presentation, employers can designate any person as that authorized representative to examine the original documents and complete section two. Um, in the past, um, employers would often go to notary publics um, or other um, kind of trusted folks um, to handle that um, remote agent process. Um, in the era of COVID-19, um, particularly where most folks are subject to sheltering in place and governmental orders, very likely it will be um, an employee's family member or friend um, who would likely be your remote agent. Um, so in looking at that, I think you need to think about um, how you handle that and remember that the employer is liable for any violations. Um, if you do this remote agent process, the good news is you do it and you're done right? It's not like the virtual process where you have to keep um, a running tickler of who's coming back, what is normal operations, what's three days, um, the I-9 is done, and you can um, pretty much review and put it away. Um, but <laughs> you have to establish really good, clear procedures and instructions if you use this remote agent process. So you need to establish uh, procedures and instructions, not only for the employee, and remember, the employee needs to make sure that section one is still completed on the first day, and employers should really say, 
who can act as an agent. So for example, I don't think we want the employee's 12-year-old child to be doing the <laughs> I-9, right? So I no. think there has to be some kind of guidelines as to who's going to act as the agent. And there should also be clear procedures for agents with an overview of the process and timing, including a really good set of FAQs. Um, how do you do this process? And we've worked with employers over the years who regularly use these authorized representatives and we work with them and we tailor. Um, usually it's just like a one pager providing guidance to agents in terms of what the process is. And we try to handle some of the questions that we know come up. So for example, one of the first questions that always comes up, because when the agent fills out section two and the attestation, there's that block for job title. Well, geez, they're not an employee of the company. So what do they put? They put authorized representatives. So the more we can make it easier for them, the better. Now, even though this is not a virtual review, um, I think they're, one of the best practices for this is to really consider using a webcam um, so that you, as an experienced person doing I-9s, can be there while the agent is completing the I-9, can see the documents, can see how it's being completed, and hopefully avoid any errors before the I-9 is finalized. Um, also remember that the agent must copy and scan any documents and send them to the employer. Um, again, making sure that it's done in a secure fashion. Um, also remember that E-Verify employers absolutely will need copies of those documents and that just doing this remote process is not enough. You still have to do E-Verify within those three days. Um, we also absolutely recommend um, once you have that completed I-9 um, by your authorized representative that you review that I-9 that's completed by the agent for errors and you make any corrections consistent with the guidance. And remember our standard guidance for I-9 self-audits and corrections. It has to be generally done in a different color ink it has to be clear it's a correction. I would draw a line through it in a different color, um, initial and date. Um, so Drew, do you wanna give us a little bit of background? We're trying to go through some of this other guidance that has come out in addition to the, the enhanced flexibility memo. Um, what if the employee can't get their uh, list B document, like their driver's license, extended? Sure. Well, thankfully, Elise, we have some flexibility uh, with regards to that issue. So um, if a list B document, and I think the most typical list B document is certainly the driver's license, um, if that document is set to expire on or after March 1st, the employer can now actually treat that as a valid receipt, right? So you can utilize it and you should record that document in section two. You can enter COVID-19 in the additional information field 
Um, however, within 90 days, right, of, of the termination of the flexibility, the employee does have to come back to you with a valid license um, to update their I-9. And when the employer later comes back with the unexpired driver's license, you enter the doc number um, and so forth in the section two additional info field and you will uh, initial and date that. Uh, so it's very clearly uh, demonstrated that they came back to you with the unexpired document. If you are fortunate enough to reside in a state that auto extended your driver's license, so you don't have to go back and get a new license, that, of course, is also uh, you know, acceptable uh, as well. If the document expired on or after March 1st, um, you can enter the uh, document expiration date in Section 2. Again, you enter COVID-19 in the additional information field. You also want to be sure to attach a copy of the, of the web page or notice that gave you the authority to extend the document, right? So the proof that that state has taken that action. And the nice thing, if your document has been auto extended, is the employee does not then need to come back within that 90-day period I talked about earlier and give you a new updated license. So if, if it's auto extended, um, that doesn't have to happen. So that's a really nice benefit right now for LISP documents um, when many state DMVs, of course, may simply be uh, you know, not opened at this point. Um, so at least we've talked a lot about documents. Um, do you want to talk a little bit, um, you know, I know time is getting short on E-Verify and what some of the changes have been there. Sure. Um, so I, I, I alluded to this a little bit. Um, the deadlines have not changed for E-Verify either. The E-Verify case must be done within that three business days from the date of hire. And you should use the I-9 to create that case. And remember, um, and the folks who use E-Verify that are on the call are going to know this, if for some reason E-Verify is uh, delayed beyond those three days due to COVID-19, the government recommends um, selecting um, from that drop-down menu of why there's a delay, um, there's an other section, and you can write in COVID-19. Um, we think they may put an actual COVID-19 in there, but it's my understanding it's still other and we need to write in COVID-19. Um, what else do we think about with um, E-Verify? Um, if the state automatically extends that driver's license, the employer really, even though it's E-Verify and it's automatically extended, the expiration date, even though it's passed, um, that's on that driver's license that expired, should still be put into the E-Verify case. Um, it's our understanding, even though there is that expiration date, um, those um, E-Verify queries are not getting kicked out. They've modified the system to accept it. Um, also remember for E-Verify, there is that memo allowing the extension of timing if there is that tentative non-confirmation as well. So for example, normally the employee would only have eight days to resolve the issue with Social Security. Well, Social Security for the most part is closed right now. So that, that eight days no longer applies um, and the guidance from E-Verify basically says the employer can take no action against that employee while the case process is still listed as interim status. 
Okay. Okay, that's our um, I-9 process with regard to enhanced flexibility. Super, super quickly so we can get a chance to do some questions, Drew. Can you just yes. give us a very quick highlight of some of the M274 handbook updates? All right, so the Cliff Notes quick version is there's been some tweaks to a couple of areas, automatic EAD extensions. Um, so you can now write the EAD extension with the 180 day auto extended date in the additional info field tab in section two. Um, thankfully, now the employee no longer has to go in and replace um, the employment authorized date in section one. So that burden has been relieved. Um, with regards to F1 STEM OPT, and of course now we're in um, you know H1B cap season, so this is uh, very relevant. Um, you would enter uh, the expired EAD in the document title fields, and then you can enter the date of 180 days uh, from from the EAD expiration date in, in the um, in the expiration date field. Um, previously, you had to put the uh, the EAD expiration date in that field. Now you can go 180 days out with regards to F1 STEM OPT questions uh, cases rather. Um, with regards to cap gap extensions, um, you may now accept the expired EAD in combination with the receipt notice for the H-1B filing, um, and you are no longer required to inspect the I-20. I know, uh, Elise, you have strong feelings about that <laughs> on the I-20, um, but the technical guidance in the M-274 is that's no longer required. Um, and in Section 2, you can now enter EAD in the List A column, uh, you would record the 797 receipts and enter, of course, uh, September 30th, along with the year the petition was filed, uh, you know, in the expiration date field. So just some, some minor tweaks there in how CapGap is handled, and you would, of course, indicate CapGap in the additional uh, information field as well. Um, the I-9 retention rules um, remain the same, so I'm, I'm not going to go through those. Um, they, they, they remain, uh, you know, as uh, as they have always been. Um, with regards to 240-day extensions, if you filed an, an extension and are entitled to the 240 days of additional employment, you no longer need to update Section 1 with the 240-day um, you know, extension period, um, and you can uh, continue to write the 240-day extension along with the I-129 um, submission date in the additional info uh, information box field in Section 2. Um, one thing I would note just on I-9 retention, although the rules remain um, you know, exactly the same, there is now guidance in the M-274 that, uh, that you should be putting the ter terminated employees into two buckets. Bucket number one would be if the employee worked for less than two years, you would retain the I-9 for three years after the date you entered in their first day of employment. And if the employee worked for more than two years, you retain the I-9 for one year after the date that the employment ended. And I think, of course, you know, the key point with regards to terminated uh, employees uh, still, of course, hasn't changed, which is purge the I-9s, right, whenever you are legally able. You do not have to proffer I-9s outside of, of the retention period you know, when you're audited. So it's really, really important, um, you know, that those dates are, are monitored closely. Um, Elise, do you kind of want to finish up with 
what we're seeing in enforcement these days. Um, and, and I would gather the administration is not sleeping on enforcement. <laughs> they're not. Um, and there, there, there are some differences in terms of what's happening. Um, so the Department of Justice Immigrant and Employee Rights Section, I alluded to that earlier, the non-discrimination requirements, is very active in terms of still making sure that the employers um, follow the rules and don't discriminate. So don't ask for a specific document, for example. Don't um, look at someone who appears foreign and ask for uh, a Homeland Security document, for example. Or if in section one, they check that they are a permanent resident, um, don't ask for a green card. They can submit, as always, any one of the combination of acceptable documents, either a list A or a combination of B and C. Um, we've actually been very surprised. Um, fraud detection and national security or FDNS site visits are still continuing. Um, a couple of our clients have reached out um, as they have had virtual FDNS site inspections where they have been called by FDNS agents. Um, we're still seeing a trend with FDNS site um, inspections that they tend to do many more inspections for contractors placed at client sites. Um, so we're actually getting um, a lot of our clients who are not necessarily the H-1B employer, they're just the end client site, calling us and saying, hey, I just got a call from FDNS. So those are continuing. Um, in the last um, year, um, I-9 audits and investigations have more than quadrupled. Um, and they are still continuing. In fact, there are waves of notices of inspections being issued. One such wave um, was actually in March. Um, there was a wave of NOIs issued in about the first week uh, of March, maybe some into the second week of March. Interestingly, those NOIs on their face um, allowed more than the three days. Um, but remember the uh, new guidance that March 20th memo and then the extension on May 14th actually allows flexibility in terms of a response now to a notice of inspection. Um, and that flexibility is to June 19th at this point. So let's um, just close with why it's important <laughs> to do this right, right? Um, the, the fines for I-9s can be very high, right? Um, Drew and I have been doing audits for several years. Um, rarely uh, do we do a self-audit for a company and we find uh, perfect I-9s. Usually there's some problem at about 80% or more of the I-9s. But if you look at the fine structure, if you have problems in 50% of your I-9s, it could be over $1,900 in terms of a fine per I-9. Right, okay. and, and Elise, you kind of you, you kind of took my question. I don't think I've ever seen a self-audit that we've been involved with that has had a violation percentage under 50%. Uh, no, that we never have, even with, even with amazing employers, right? Um, and, right. and, and we have a lot of clients with extraordinarily sophisticated folks 
Um, and they're all very good, but the I-9s are very tricky, and the government looks at them very closely. So let's get to some of the questions. I'll start with the super um, easiest question. Um, will the PowerPoint be available after the presentation? Absolutely, we will make the PowerPoint available. Not only will we make the PowerPoint available, um, we are also recording the PowerPoint, um, and we will make the recording available to anyone who uh, registered um, for the presentation. Um, so there's some fantastic questions here, so let's just go through a couple of them. Um, <clears throat> One question is, um, um, a university has um, uh, an employee who is outside the United States, um, but they never nevertheless want them to start while they are outside the United States. Um, and the university is asking um, whether or not um, they can use that virtual completion option for um, the employee outside the United States. Um, the good news is there's actually guidance on um, the government website for I-9 Central that says if your employee is outside, physically outside the United States, the I-9 requirements do not kick in until the employee is feet on the ground in the United States. And if you think about it, that really makes sense because the, the normal process for I-9 completion requires the employee to be physically in front of the employer so the employer can assess the documents in hand um, with the employee there, if it's reasonably genuine, um, and if it relates to the employee. So, the good news there is you would just want to document um, when the employee comes back into the United States and complete the I-9 at that point. Right, and you may also be uh, creating some tax and benefits issues with that arrangement, that, but that's beyond the scope of uh, this afternoon. Exactly. Um, so, Drew, um, I'm looking at some of the other questions. Um, what happens if um, the person does not have a valid driver's license? I think you talked uh, about this already a little bit, yeah. but can you kind of give a quick summary on this? Because it seems like there's there's still a couple questions about uh, expired driver's licenses. Right. So, so the issue is going to depend on whether or not the state has auto extended the, the license or not. So thankfully, this is one of the areas where we have great flexibility. So if the state has actually gone ahead, um, it, well, if they've not extended the, the, the driver's license, you can use that document as a valid receipt, right? So you can record the document in section two and you can enter COVID-19 and it becomes a valid uh, you know, document as it would be for a receipt for, uh, for I-9 purposes. However, within 90 days, right, of the DHS uh, terminating the flexibility uh, policy, the, the employee does have to come back to you 
and um, you know and and show you the uh, the updated license. If the license has been auto extended, right? So if you're lucky enough to live in a state that has done that, um, you know that's acceptable as well. You can enter the expiration date in section two along with COVID-19. And the key here, if you've been auto extended, is you want to attach a documentation of the auto extension behind the I-9. So if you're ever audited the examiner can clearly see that uh, you know that you did this properly and you accepted a document that was auto extended and in the case of auto extension the employee need not come back to you within the 90-day time frame and, and uh, the i9 is is good uh, at the moment of completion then so Drew, there's another excellent question that i'm going to pop over to you um so if what if the office is closed and the employer is closed? Does the employer still need to observe that strict three-day deadline if that office is closed due to COVID-19? I would say no, because normal business operations have not resumed at that point. Yeah, I absolutely agree, because if you remember, the requirement is that the I-9 must be completed within three business days. So if that situation occurs, I would recommend that you as the employer um, attach a memo to the I-9, um, making it very clear that the operations were in fact closed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a very bright line where I think it may get a little bit squishier, for example, is if you come back, you know, as many of us may do right in phases in order to preserve social distancing and you have some of your workforce back in, in phase one, as you alluded to earlier, at least that phase one might not include some of the key HR people um, who handle I-9 compliance. And whether that is a resumption of normal operations or not, I think is a closer question. And I think that, you know, would, would be something that we would want to look at on an individualized basis. Okay, so I, I know we're getting to time. I'm going to close with one question that is absolutely excellent. Um, so the question is, if we are doing virtual I-9 verification, um, does the same person who initially verified the I-9 virtually um, have to be the person who verifies the documentation upon resuming to normal operations? Um, it's a fantastic question. Um, in fact, it's one of our first questions that's on our agenda when we go back to talk to the government as the AILA Verification Committee. Um, the guidance from the government is not clear. Um, it does not say that it has to be the same person. Um, now, of course, you know, normal rules for I-9s, the person that completes Section 2 um, is the, the person who's physically there and reviewing the documents. Um, I do think um, that there is an argument, um, particularly in light of what um, Drew is saying in terms of what we expect to happen when businesses resume. I think there is a clear argument to make that it does not necessarily have to be the same person um, who does that added update. Um, it, that person may actually no longer be at the company, right? What right. if that employee is no longer there? 
Um, what if they're not necessarily um, going to the office? They they maybe have health issues. They're just working remotely. I think there has to be flexibility in this regard, um, so that it doesn't necessarily have to be the same person. I do think, of course, if you could have the same person do it, that would is is easier, right? Because it doesn't raise a question. But as a practical matter, um, especially if you're a large company, um, I think that might be very difficult to have the same person um, yeah. doing that verification after that three days. And remember, right. there is nothing in the current guidance saying it absolutely has to be the same person. No, and in fact, I would hope that there's some flexibility there because you know there is some some notion of you you being able to write down who conducted the second inspection in that additional information field. So hopefully, by by uh, by providing that kind of flexibility, I think you know at least that uh, the government is probably likely to agree with you that it can be that second person, uh, given that uh, you know you can identify yourself in that uh, additional information tab. Right. I, yes, I agree. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, so much for attending. Um, we actually handled a fair amount of the questions. There are questions that remain, Drew, and I will try to get back to folks. Um, please, as well, if you have not uh, typed anything in yet, um, please feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to help and answer any questions in these difficult times. Um, we really hope that you found this webinar helpful um, and our contact information I will put on the screen for everyone um, so you can reach out to us. And again, anyone who registered will be uh, receiving um, a copy of the PowerPoint um, as well as a link if they want to go back to a recording. Um, and please remember, too, that um, our firm regularly publishes blogs, articles, and news alerts. Um, and we're happy to send any of these to you. If you would like to sign up to get these alerts, um, please go to our website, classicallaw.com. And you can also follow us on LinkedIn as well, um, Facebook and Twitter. We're happy to provide additional updates, and we will likely have yet again another webinar as things progress with COVID-19. Um, we're trying to keep all of our clients up to date as things change. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for joining, and uh, we hope to have you join uh, upcoming webinars as well. And we can't wait to see all of your faces in person. Thank you so much. Have a good afternoon, everyone.